pray that as the word is preached this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Are we there yet? What parent doesn't recognize that phrase, right? Are we there yet? Usually it's more like this. Are we there yet? 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 With all the modern advancements and technology and all the things that now parents have available to help them with their task of parenting and, and um, all they have to help them with helping kids obey, nothing has been invented to solve the problem of are we there yet? I mean, when we go on a trip, part of the reason we take long trips through the night is that very phrase, are we there yet? So they can sleep and when they wake up, hopefully we'll be closer to there than we were before. Are we there yet? Maybe that's how you feel. We've been in Acts. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? We are there, guys. We are there. We are at the end. We are at the, the, the final chapter here of the book of Acts. And I think it's been a good journey. Uh, I just uh, I was <laughs> just talking to Warren right here during the welcome time. And I put on Facebook this week that I was very glad and blessed that we were at the end of Acts. And, and I, I kind of said two things. I said, number one, it was, it's been a blessing to me personally to go through the book of Acts. And uh, it's just wonderful to be here at the end of the book. And so Warren was saying, when people click like when you wrote that, were they saying they were glad we were at the end of Acts? Or they were, or they saying that they were blessed as well? I said, I don't know. Either way, we are at the end of the book of Acts, and it has been a blessing. It's been a, a great journey. Um, I know that we, um, Deemer and I, just mere sinful men, we cannot even begin to do justice to a text like this, a wonderful passage of Scripture. I do sincerely pray, though, that once um, Deemer and I are long forgotten, faded away in your memory, that his word will stand. And his word will stand strong in your heart, and you'll remember what he's taught you through the book of Acts. Um, and hopefully it will produce fruit not only now, but for years to come. So um, I want to start off with just a prayer of thanksgiving to thank God for this wonderful text as we bring it to a close today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you and we praise you and thank you. You have given us a word. We don't come to you aimless, groping in the dark. Instead, you have given us a revelation, truth, infallible, inerrant truth. And this book of Acts is a part of that. With all the amazing adventures that Peter and Paul and the other apostles and Luke and others went through, it's not just a story. It's a great story, but it's more than that. And we thank you for that this morning. We thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you for the whole story of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. This tremendous story, one story of Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you for it. And we ask now as we bring it to a close, Lord, that you continue to bear fruit with your word because it does not return void. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hopefully by God's grace, um, you've gotten immersed into the story as we've gone along and, and you've seen how the gospel of Jesus Christ has advanced through the book of Acts from, from Jerusalem, from a little hillside, Jerusalem to Judea, then to Samaria, and then 
to the ends of the earth. But it's a story that's not done yet. Matter of fact, the ending of this book doesn't really feel like an ending. If you read, if you listen to what Demer read, and if you read it for yourself, it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like, like an ending. It's not real tidy. It's such a rich narrative, such a wonderful story. We've talked about what a great storyteller Luke is, that the story of the shipwreck, which was what we looked at last week, and, and then prior to that, those courtroom dramas. He's such a great storyteller. And then you get to the ending here, and you just feel kind of like it, what happened? What happens to Paul? What about Peter? We haven't heard about him since way back in chapter 13 or so. What, what, what happened here? And so you kind of feel like you're left hanging. Um, it's like when you're watching a TV show, and I mentioned a few weeks back that nowadays TV shows all sort of run in one week, runs into the next week, which runs into the next week, 24, lost, whatever like that. But, but when I was a kid watching the A-Team, all right, the story wrapped up in the hour you had. But did you ever have that experience where you, you're really immersed, maybe it's been a really good story, it's been really well told, and you're watching, and, and you're like, oh, this is just such a great story. And you look over at the clock, and there's only five minutes left. In the hour. And you know, you know in your heart what's going to pop on that screen at the end of the story. Those dreaded words, to be continued. You had to see what B.A. was going to do. Were they going to get out of this mess? What was, was Hannibal going to solve the problem here? What, is the A-team going to succeed or are they finally going to be defeated? And, and you wanted to know how the story ends and it says, to be continued. And that's how you kind of feel here. You're, you're in this story of Acts, especially these last couple of chapters. There's this amazing shipwreck, and there's this, this fantastic story of them on Malta. And you're like, you're just getting into it, and you, you look up at the clock, and it's like, there's five minutes left. In this case, you look at the book, and you say, wait a second here. The next page says Romans. What's going on? Wait a second. That's because it is very much a story that is being continued. It's still going on. There's at least a couple of reasons I think Luke ends the story the way he does. First of all, I believe that Luke's writing this uh, down pretty close to the time that it's actually happening, around A.D. 62. So while Paul's experiencing these last these two years in jail in Rome, that, that Luke is, is finishing his narrative and sending it off to Theophilus. Now we know, well, I, I believe that the evidence points to the, the possibility, the, the likelihood that, that Paul was released from Roman prison after these two years. During these two years, he probably wrote at least four of his epistles. But after that, he's, he's released for a, for a time. Um, a couple of the early church fathers, Clement, for example, who wrote in AD 95, says that, that Paul was released and then went to the other, other the, to the outer expanses of the Roman Empire, which would include places like Spain, which he was desiring to go to. We know from the book of Romans that he wanted to get to Spain. And then at some point he was rearrested. During that time of freedom, he probably wrote a couple of the pastoral epistles. And then he was rearrested and put into a much darker set of circumstances. He was put into a dungeon in Rome. And he basically was on death row. At that time he wrote 2 Timothy. And he would then be beheaded. But Luke finishes his narrative probably as Paul's finishing up that, that time in prison, this first imprisonment. And so he sends the letter to Theophilus and it's all the information he has. But I think there's other reasons as well. I think first of all that Luke, inspired by the Spirit of God, 
is not giving us a biography of Paul. Nor is he giving us a biography of Peter or of any of the apostles. Okay, He's not sitting here giving us their story. He's giving us the story of the gospel. Of the spread of the gospel. It's very much a story of Jesus, the main character, and the spread of his message, the good news to the ends of the earth. Paul's story eventually ends. Peter's story eventually ends. But Jesus' story goes on and on and on and on. And I think that's part of the reason the Holy Spirit left it like this. It's because it's still going on. And finally, I think that the story's left with an open ending because it implies that we, the church, are to continue verse 31. We are to continue to preach the Word of God. We are to continue to preach about the kingdom of God and Jesus until Acts 1-8 is completed. Acts 1-8 said this, if you'll remember, way back at the beginning of this journey through Acts. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 28-31 says that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without what? Without hindrance. Nothing is going to hinder the gospel from reaching the ends of the earth and completing the Acts 1-8 mission. God's people will be persecuted and martyred, but the gospel is unhindered. God's church will make mistakes. God's people, God's saints, are still struggle with sin, but the gospel goes forth unhindered. Nothing is stopping it, and it will accomplish its end. Namely, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ will reach every tribe and people and language and nation because our Lord said in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So that's why Acts ends this way. It's ongoing. I am, we are, you are, the to be continued. That world's words to be continued are written on you. We are to to continue this message. Therefore, the question for us this morning is this. Are we continuing verse 31? Are we continuing to proclaim the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance? Are you, am I, is Harbin's? That's the question. So I want that question to kind of sit on our heart for a little while as we work our way through this passage. But first, a little bit of recap. Okay? You guys know the story well now, but I think it's always good to bring us up to speed. Paul has finished his third missionary journey. As I mentioned earlier, he probably took a fourth missionary journey that we don't actually have recorded in Scripture. But we know we have three for sure recorded in Scripture. He finishes his third missionary journey. He goes to Jerusalem. There he is persecuted as the Holy Spirit said he would be. He is imprisoned by the Jews. The Romans actually have to save him from their violent behavior. The Romans end up taking him to Caesarea because they couldn't get to the bottom of things there in Jerusalem. In Caesarea, he goes through three different trials. Once before, one before Felix, one before Festus, and one before Agrippa, although that one really wasn't a trial per se. But in all of those, we see Paul boldly proclaiming why truly he was being persecuted. And it wasn't because of some differences of opinion on Jewish culture. It was because he was proclaiming the hope of Israel, the Messiah, Jesus, and that this Jesus had been risen from the dead. And so... 
the Jews trying to get Paul back to Jerusalem so they can ambush him on the way and kill him, uh, try to convince Festus to do that. But Paul knows what's going on and he appeals to Caesar. And when he appeals to Caesar, he is going to be going to Rome for sure. Jesus had already promised him he would be going to Rome in, in Acts 23, 11. And now that journey is set for sure when Paul appeals, is forced to appeal to Caesar. Now on the way to Rome, though, we had that fantastic story from last week of the shipwreck. So they're shipwrecked, and that's what brings us today to Malta. They're shipwrecked on this little island called Malta. Now a few interesting things happen here. First of all, the people were very kind. Matter of fact, Luke says they were unusually kind. But kindness doesn't make one right with God. We quickly see that they are spiritually blind and confused. Paul gets bitten by a snake while gathering wood, which I think in and of itself is interesting that the great apostle, the great theologian Paul, wasn't, wasn't above doing manual labor. He's there collecting wood for the fire, and he gets bitten by a snake. And um, when the people see this, they say in verse 4, No doubt this man was a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. These people were superstitious. They were, they were, they were basically were animists. I read a great book this week, uh, probably one of the best mission books I've read in a long time, called Reckless Abandoned. It's the story of David Sitton, who was a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And just reading his story and reading, it, it reminded me of this, actually. How they were, people were so superstitious as he would go. Now, he'd be, he was the first white people a lot of people had seen on those, those islands. And he'd go in and, 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 and go and just fearlessly go into these headhunting tribes and share the gospel with them. And a couple of times he had some power encounters. But they would, they would always try to conjure up the spirits. And they had this belief, this animism belief that, that all animals and even, even non-animated things like like trees and, and, and the grass have spirits residing within them. And you always have to keep the spirits happy. So if a, let's say a tree falls on someone's hut, it was because someone had angered the spirit that indwelt that tree. And so they were always doing things to try to please the spirits. And this seems to be the same way the people on Malta lived. So what do these Maltese people learn? Well, what they should have learned at least was that the God Paul serves is more powerful than the gods that they were trying to appease, these false gods that they were trying to appease. That's what they should have learned, but instead they think Paul is a god. Now then, then Paul and his companions get invited to the home of Publius, the chief of the island, and they end up hearing that Publius's father is sick, and there was a well-known disease in that area. It was actually called the Maltese fever that was contracted from drinking goat, goat's milk um, that, that was very pretty rampant during that time. And so perhaps that's what this man has. Regardless, Paul heals him, and he ends up healing a lot of people on the island. The power of God is demonstrated wonderfully on the island of Malta. Now what's absent, though, from this passage? And it still bugs me, and I wish I could say I could wrap it up in a nice, tidy bow and tell you that it doesn't need to bother you. But what's absent, or what seems to be absent at least, is the preaching of the gospel on the island of Malta. We don't have any indication here that Paul, no clear indication that Paul preached the gospel or shared the gospel with these people in any sort of way. But I think it's safe to assume that he did. Why? Well, because we know from Paul's record in Lystra when they tried to call him a god, he didn't allow that to happen. He said, no, we're not gods. Let me tell you about the one true God. Don't call us gods. And secondly, Paul never, never passed up an open door, an open opportunity to share the gospel. And thirdly, 
We never see in Acts, apart from this one text right here, miracles being performed apart from the gospel also being proclaimed. And so I think based upon that evidence, Scripture interpreting Scripture, we can assume that Paul did share the gospel while he's on the island, but perhaps none believed. For whatever reason, Luke didn't see fit to record it, if that is what happened. At the very least, though, the people of Malta had their animistic beliefs rocked to the core by this man who trusted Jesus. When you go into a culture like that, a primitive culture, and there's some indications that these people who lived on Malta were sort of a primitive type of people. When you go into a primitive culture like that, and, and, and logic and reason and, and discussions about the scriptures sometimes are very difficult. And so the story of David sitting with reckless abandon it sometimes took a decade before one person in a village would confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's a lot of hard work. So perhaps that also contributes here to what's going on in Malta. We do know that they have now witnessed the power of the one true God and that their beliefs have been rocked. So then they set sail from Malta after wintering there on a, on a ship that had wintered there. Luke, again, gives us some interesting details, okay? For example, the fact that this ship had twin gods carved on the front of it. I, mean, I, I read through these things and I'm like, now Luke, why mention that? What is that? What on earth does that have to do with the story? Well, I think Luke, again, is showing here the futility of the spiritual beliefs of the people in the Roman world where Paul was ministering. Not only the Maltese people and their animistic beliefs, but the Greek-Roman culture of the day that believed in all these gods of Greek mythology. These two twin gods were Castor and Pollux, sons of, the Zeus, of Zeus of Greek mythology. They were supposed to be the gods who protected sailors. I think, again, just as in the Maltese people's response to the snake bite, Luke is exposing the silliness of the pagan religious beliefs of the day as compared to the one true God. And it still goes on today. When I read that, that these two gods were basically the patron gods who were there to protect sailors. Today, you see the same thing. There are certain restaurants you can go into today. You go in and you'll see a little picture. And you'll see, you notice it next time you go, particularly probably a Mexican restaurant. You see a little picture and it'll look like a Roman soldier on a horse with a sword drawn. And there's some person with like a drape over them laying on the ground. It looks like he's about to hit them or something. And you see the picture, and I've seen it many, many times, many, many different restaurants, and not just Mexican restaurants. That is the Catholic patron saint of small businesses. Did you know that there was such a thing? That's the Catholic patron saint of small businesses. People are still practicing the same things today. They're still putting their hope in superstitions. They're, instead of putting twin gods on the front of their boat, they're putting a picture in their business, hoping that somehow having that physical picture present in that room with them can somehow make their business succeed. When in reality, the one true God has spoken to them so clearly through what can be seen. His, his nature has been so clearly proclaimed in, in the things that have been created. And beyond that, he has given us an infallible word right here. We don't have to believe in those things, yet people are blind and hard-hearted and grasp onto what they can hold with their hands or carve with their hands in utter foolishness, bowing down to the things that their own hands have created. It continues today. Don't look at the Maltese people and, and these sailors from, from thousands of years ago and say how foolish they were when it goes on right here, right now, all over the world. 
in America. Same foolishness. A couple of neat things to note here as Paul gets closer to Rome. When they land in the city called Petioli, I guess that's how you pronounce it, you can tell they're getting close to Italy because they're getting some really Italian names, you know? The pizza's getting close. All right. You can tell they're getting Putioli. They walk into Putioli. And what happens? The brothers meet them there. What a great little note that Luke puts into the story here. I think it reinforces the note, the very last word of the book of Acts, which is the word unhindered or without hindrance. I think it reinforces the fact that the gospel is already going forth. It has reached a city called Putioli long before Paul got there. Paul's never been to Rome before. Did you know that? He's written to the Romans, but he's never been there. We don't know how the gospel got to Rome. But it got there. Here's Paul going to bring the good news, but the unhindered good news has already gone before him. And there are churches and there are brothers waiting to receive and comfort him. And when the brothers in Rome hear that he's coming... They actually go to some of the cities, the neighboring cities there. Some of them go to Appius, which is 40 miles from Rome. Others go as far as Three Taverns, which is about 28 miles from Rome. And they meet him there. And needless to say, we read in verse 15 that when Paul sees them, he thanked God and took courage. What an encouragement. As he's coming in, in chains for the sake of the gospel, he sees the fruit of the gospel coming to welcome, to welcome him as he's walking down the road into Rome. What an encouragement. Have you ever had that experience where you meet another believer? Excuse me. All of a sudden. Can someone get me a glass of water? Anybody? Thank you. What, have you ever had that experience? Ever had that feeling when you run into a brother or sister in Christ? You didn't, perhaps you didn't know they were a brother and sister in Christ. And you, you get to talking to them and you, you, you find that out. And it's such an encouragement. And there's an immediate bond there. Now, I've experienced it overseas, which makes the bond even more supernatural. When you go to meet someone from a totally different culture, totally different background, and you, you meet them and you find out they're a believer, or they welcome you when you're coming in as a mission team, and you find out they're a believer, and, and the bond and the union we have in Christ is supernatural. It blows you away. We may have nothing in common, but we are one in Christ. It's absolutely Amazing, and it gives you great encouragement, and I'm sure it did to Paul here as well. So Paul finally arrives in Rome. Thank you, Warren. Paul finally arrives in Rome, is allowed to stay by himself. Well, sort of. He does just have a Roman soldier chained to his right wrist. Okay. Besides that, he's by himself. Now I want us to notice three things, observe three things about how Paul finishes things out here in Acts. And then I want to take those three things and just sort of as way of application, apply them to us in Harbin's. So here's number one. The first point in your notes. Paul's ministry and methods were consistent. Paul's ministry and methods were consistent. Paul continues to do what Paul has always been doing. And it says here, That he speaks to the Jews first. Now you would think that this man who has been so persecuted by the Jews would have given up on the Jews. But he gets to Rome and he calls the Jews to him first. Why? Because Paul believes and teaches Romans 1.16. He says that he's not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes who? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. In every single city that Paul has gone to, he seeks out the synagogues first and preaches in those synagogues. Why? We talked about this already. Well, first of all, it's strategically important as the Jews would be the ones who had heard, who had knowledge of the scriptures and thus it seems that they would be the ones who would be most ready to hear the good news regarding the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, the hope of Israel. But also because the Jews were the recipients of the promises. They, which were namely the Old Testament, the law, the prophets. They therefore needed to hear that God's promises had found their yes and amen in the Messiah. And that Messiah was Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, the Jews had the first part of the story... The Bible is one story. The Jews had the first part of the story, and Paul was coming in to give them the rest of the story. Like uh, old Paul Harvey used to say, right? And now for the rest of the story. So now another Paul comes in and says, and now for the rest of the story. The, the Jews were God's people. They had been his chosen people. They had been the one God had used to, to who had given, the, given his revelation to. They were to be a light unto the Gentiles. Now they had failed at that. So we read in... Acts 28, 17, it says that after three days, now, interesting here, Paul doesn't take any time off when he gets to Rome. Now, think about it. This guy has had quite a journey. Isn't he entitled to at least seven days? Come on. Just take a week off, Paul. But he gets there, and it says after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. Okay, he couldn't go to any of the synagogues, so he calls them to himself. And when they had gathered, he said, brothers... Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem in the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel. We've heard that over and over again, haven't we? It's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Paul does four things right here in this little passage. Number one, he makes it abundantly clear that he is not guilty of any of the offenses against the Jewish people that he's been accused of. Number two, he makes it abundantly clear that the Romans were actually ready to release him. They had found him not guilty. Thirdly, he makes it abundantly clear that he had not brought any counter charges against the Jewish leaders, which he was entitled to because he had been falsely accused. And he could have brought countercharges, but he says he hasn't done that. And then fourthly, Paul, uh, Luke makes it clear here, through, uh, Paul makes it clear here that there is another reason, a more important reason that he's been bound, and that is the hope of Israel. And they would have known exactly what he meant when he said the hope of Israel. They would have known he was talking about the Messiah, the Christ. And they said to him this, and I think this is a bit surprising. They said, we have received no letters from Judea about you. I would have assumed they'd heard about this, but apparently they haven't. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But they had heard about Christianity. It says in verse 22, But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Aha. So Paul has his open door. He has his open door. And so I'm going to continue to our next point. Okay, so Paul's ministry and methods were consistent. Paul's message was constant. He always had the same message everywhere he went. The same message. Acts 28, 23. 
And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. This word here, expound, means to expose or to reveal. He's revealing to them, he's exposing to them the truths from the Old Testament regarding Jesus. And I was thinking about how to illustrate that, and I brought a puzzle here this morning, kids. Now, if I were to throw, Richie wants this puzzle when I'm done. I can't give it to him because it belongs to, belongs to Emma Kate. But he was so impressed with it when he saw it in my office. It's a, it's a pretty little rainbow unicorn. So, um, oh my, there went a piece. Now, if you were to take this puzzle and throw the pieces on the floor for our kids... You know, they, now, this one's a pretty easy one. They probably could figure it out. But let's say we're a bigger puzzle. Thousands of pieces. And you throw it out on the floor. Okay, go at it, guys. Figure it out. And they may be able to figure it out. They may be, put it to, be able to put it together. But what would be really helpful? When you're, using, when you're putting a puzzle together, there's something you really need to have, something you don't want to throw away. What is it? The picture on the front of the box. You need this. It's so kind of how I envision it. The, the, the Jews had all the pieces. It's all there. It's in the prophets. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the Mosaic Law. It's all there. All the pieces. And Paul is coming up and he's expounding to them. Like I said, the word means to expose or to reveal. And he's saying, let me show you the picture. Here's the picture. Jesus of Nazareth, he is the fulfillment of all the law. He is the fulfillment of all the prophets. This is what you've been looking for. This is what you've been hoping for. The problem with the Jews is when they saw the picture, they didn't like what they saw. Because they imagined the pieces coming together in a much different way. They imagined the pieces coming together with a much different picture. But Paul comes to them. He exposes. He expounds. He reveals Jesus Christ to them. He explains to them what the kingdom of God is really about. His message is twofold. Both here and in verse 31, there's two parts to his message. The kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. He testifies to the kingdom of God and convinces them about Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God. It was not what they had expected. They had been looking for an earthly kingdom, a geopolitical kingdom. They had been waiting for political deliverance from Rome, defeat of their enemies. This is what they had in mind, but Paul shows them from the Old Testament that this wasn't the type of kingdom that God was setting up, at least not yet. And since they were awaiting such a kingdom, they were therefore expecting a much different king. They were expecting a different Messiah. So Paul tries to convince them, persuade them that Jesus is that king. And no doubt he spoke of the lineage of Jesus and the Davidic qualifications that Jesus had. And no doubt he demonstrated from Isaiah that the son of David was also to be a suffering servant and that he would be crushed by the Father and that he would bear the iniquities of all. And that he would rise again. He did this to expound to them a greater kingdom of God. A greater deliverance from a much greater enemy. Which is sin and death and Satan. And he did it all from the law of Moses and the prophets. The Old Testament. You see the book of Acts is just one little narrative. And a much greater, bigger story. The whole of scripture. This whole book is about Jesus Christ. The story of God's. Of a holy God redeeming sinful people through his son. And all the Bible tells the same story. It's all part of the same picture. There's not a bunch of little puzzles. It's one picture. All of scripture. I'm so glad to see that becoming a renewed emphasis in the church today. 
It really, really is encouraging. For example, Lifeway has a new curriculum out. Lifeway is our Southern Baptist um, Sunday. It used to be called Sunday School Board. Had to update it. Lifeway, they, are, they publish uh, the Sunday School curriculum. They got a new curriculum coming out. Uh, what's it called? The Gospel Project. And that's the focus. That the scriptures are one story. Especially with the children to help them understand that. Because I don't know how you grew up learning the Bible. But if you're like me, it was a story here and a story there and a verse here and a verse there and memorize this verse and memorize this verse and don't forget this story, especially the really cool stories like Noah's Ark. You've got to tell that one like 50 times before kids are out of elementary school, right? And over it, it, it was so disjointed and unconnected. That's how I was treated in Sunday school. And I'm sure we, we had the best intentions in mind. But I think a more scriptural way of dealing with the Bible story is understanding it the way Paul does, does, and that is it's one story about Jesus Christ. Don't break it into fragments. We often look at stories and verses isolated from their immediate context and from the context of the whole of the scriptures. Would it make sense to take a story uh, for your kids? Uh, Livy and I read Black Beauty recently. And so uh, we were reading that together, and would it make sense, though, for me just to say, hey, Olivia, let's just go read chapter 24 today. And tomorrow we'll read chapter 30. And then we'll go back and read chapter 2. That was a good one. Let's read chapter 2 three times, matter of fact. And let's, it would make no sense to read a story like that to my child. So why on earth does it make sense to treat the Scriptures that way? That's what we do, though. And we need to be careful as we're teaching our children what the Bible really speaks about. Luke 24, 27, Jesus said, or it says that Jesus did this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In John 5, 39, Jesus says that the scriptures bear witness about him. So Paul speaks, as we see here, from dusk to dawn. It says from morning till evening. You think my sermons are long. Paul's sermons are really long. From morning to evening, you don't, don't forget way back, I can't remember what chapter it was, where he's preaching all night and a guy fell out of the, the church balcony and died, all right? And then Paul went and he, they resuscitated and he, he miraculously healed him, he's alive again, and they go on with the sermon. You'd think that would be, you know, they could say, can we just stop for today? I mean, this kid's been through some trauma. No, we've got to finish the sermon, you know, here we look for any excuse to kind of wrap it up. From dusk to dawn and from cover to cover. That's, what, that's how he's preaching. From dusk to dawn and from cover to cover. He's there expounding the scriptures to his Jewish brothers whom he loves dearly. It says in verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves... I think we get a pretty good indication that when Jews had arguments, they were pretty heated. Disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul made this statement. And what statement did he make? Well, he quotes the scriptures, Isaiah chapter 6. He says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Here we go, verse 26. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes they can barely hear. And, their, 
And with their ear, I'm sorry, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Let it be known, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And after hearing this, they stopped listening. Perhaps some of the Jews believed. We know that some of them were convinced, but that's not the same thing as believing. That's an important distinction to make, guys. There are a lot of people, and I'm afraid there's a lot of people sitting in church pews that are convinced. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But they're not converted. You can be convinced with head knowledge that this is true without having a heart that's been made new. Belief is faith. Putting all your hope and trust in the Jesus that you are convinced is true is different. So some were convinced. I don't know if they believed or not. But most of them left without believing, probably. And as I mentioned, Paul quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, one of the prophets, one of the parts of the story that points to Jesus. And Jesus had quoted this passage before in Matthew and in Mark. And John also quotes it in John chapter 13. This is a very difficult text. It's a very difficult text to swallow because we see two things in this text. We see God's sovereign judgment at work. And we also see man's stubborn rebellion in full swing. People are dull and blind and unperceiving of God justly and in total righteousness. God has not opened their eyes. It's totally consistent with his justice to leave people in their blindness and let them suffer forever because of their sin. And totally consistent with that are people's own stubbornness. They want to be blind. They hate the message. And they are stubborn and hard-hearted. There are only two types of people in the world. There are only two ways to live. Listen closely. Only two. There is no third option. There are those who have had their hearts, minds, eyes, ears open and thus have believed and by no merit on their own are graciously saved. And there are those whose hearts, minds, eyes, ears remain closed, dull, dead, and they disbelieve. And in total consistency with the justice of God, they are deservedly damned. Two ways to live. Only two. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God's judgment and man's hard-heartedness mysteriously woven together in a text like this one from Isaiah. And instead of responding to Paul with brokenness and weeping over their sin and over their hard-heartedness and pleading to God for mercy, who would have given mercy had they fallen on their knees and pleaded to God for mercy. Instead, they storm off, the blind leading the blind back to the synagogues. And I am certain that Paul's heart ached as they walked away. I can hear him saying as they leave, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation only to see the back of their heads as they walked away. But Paul knows that God's word is not hindered and God's kingdom is not bound by blood and ethnicity, for it is a kingdom for children of faith. That's why he says in verse 28, Therefore let it be known that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This was Paul's M.O. Three other times in Acts, 
when the Jews had rejected the message, he says, well, I'm taking it to the Gentiles now. He does the same thing again. This was meant to stir up the Jews to repentance. It had been prophesied in Deuteronomy 32, 21, another part of the story. It had been prophesied, it says this, God says, I will make them, them being the Jews, jealous of those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Romans 11, in verse 11, Paul speaking of the Jews, he says, Though their tres- through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Part of the reason the gospel is going out to the Gentiles is to make the Jews say, wait a second, we want that. And in the verse 13 of that same passage, it says this, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So as Paul is saying these words, I'm taking it to the Gentiles. They're going to listen as these men are walking away. He's doing that because he wants them to be jealous of that. He's also putting his neck on the line. Isn't that what started the riot in the temple? He wanted them to be jealous of what God was doing in the Gentiles and thus come to faith in Jesus Christ. I want people, when people see the peace that a believer has in the midst of turmoil, when people see the joy that a believer has when nothing else in the world makes sense, I've said this often, when 9-11 hit, I was astounded and actually saddened by how many Christians were so rocked by that. They were scared to death. And I remember saying to friends, so what? Let an airplane hit our building right now. We, we belong to God. The terrorists can't do anything to us. All they can do is kill us. To die is gain. Oh yeah, I'm with Jesus. Come. Bring it on. I think that when the world sees that peace and that joy in a believer, it should make them jealous. And it does. It does. Some of you guys can testify to that. You know friends, and they get mad at you. And they don't like you, and they don't like your message, and they don't like your Jesus. It's all a bunch of bunk. I don't believe in any of it. I don't like you. But what they really don't like is what's in you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And they don't like it. They've been stirred up to a certain amount of jealousy. And that is a gracious gift to them because it's supposed to drive them to their knees and say, okay, tell me about that. Tell me about what you have. I desperately need it. Acts 28, 30, and 31 This is how the story ends. It says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. There's the twofold message again. The kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So my third point is this. Paul's ministry and methods were consistent. His message was constant. And number three, Paul's mission was continuing. The chains were not stopping Paul's mission. He stayed at his own expense. Probably he made tents in order to pay. He had to pay for his own jail. Okay, think about that. Some of you guys who are, maybe you feel that way. You're in an upside down house. I'm paying for my own jail. 
every month. But Paul here literally is in prison and chained to a Roman guard, and he has to pay for it. He has to rent his own house. Okay? And he welcomed all who came to him. I think Luke puts the word all here right after he just had this discussion of Jews and Gentiles to demonstrate Paul's ministry was continuing, and it was to everyone. Jew, Gentile, didn't matter to him. They came, and they heard from him. These were some of the most productive years of Paul's life. There's no telling how far the gospel was spread because of his imprisonment. While in prison, this first imprisonment in Rome, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now, we can only speculate, but we can imagine that one day, as Paul's welcoming all these people to come and hear him, probably from dusk to dawn, you had to get there early if you're going to listen to Paul. So people come in early, bring the breakfast, got their bagel, sit down. All right, let me tell you about the kingdom of God and Jesus. One can only imagine that one day walked in this guy named Onesimus. And Onesimus probably had a heavy heart because Onesimus was a runaway slave. Matter of fact, he had also stolen from his master. And as he sits there and listens to Paul, he hears the gospel. And he hears about a freedom that he never knew he could have. And he gets saved. And Paul finds out his background and finds out that he's not only a slave, but he's owned by a guy named Philemon back in the church at Colossae. And so he writes this letter to Philemon with Onesimus right there by his side. Now Paul probably had, what do you call it, someone that, that writes your letters for you. I, would, I always forget the word. And am you something. All right. Deemer, help me, Mr. Smart Guy. Amuensis. There you go. All right. <laughs> Whatever Deemer said. He had one of those. Because think about it. He's chained to the Roman guard. Sorry. I got to finish this letter. Okay. He probably speaking these things out. Luke, others may, are, helping, are writing these things down. We know that he had some who helped him write these letters like that. So he writes this letter, sends it back to Philemon. What a glorious text we have in Philemon. It's a wonderful little book. As Paul says, listen, I want you to accept back. I want you to forgive Onesimus. And I also want to, you to bring him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Who knows what else... One can only imagine what's happening to these soldiers. You are chained to the Apostle Paul. Talk about providence. Okay? I mean, when, when, the, when the Roman centurion's drawing up the assignments, okay, um, Julius, you're assigned to Paul today. All right. That's no random accident. God's chaining you to the greatest evangelist in history. And they sat there and they heard these letters being read. They heard this dusk to dawn speeches. And we do know from history that the gospel spread within the Roman army. One of the, one of the, it was one of the quickest spread of the gospel was in, in the early beginnings of the church was within the ranks of the army. It's awesome. I imagine that some of these guys would take those, they believed, you know. They're sitting there going, I don't know why these Jews are running off like that, but hey, I, I believe. Tell me more about this Jesus. One can only imagine what was happening here, but the gospel was going forth unhindered. Philippians 1.12, written during this imprisonment, gives us a little bit of insight. This is what Paul says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, which is the imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. There's our evidence that the soldiers were listening. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment was strengthening the church in Rome. The gospel was being heard by soldiers. The gospel was being heard by runaway slaves. The gospel was being heard by anybody who would just come and sit in his little rented house. And the church was expanding and growing and being strengthened. All because Paul was in jail. Some of the most productive years of his life were right there during some of the most difficult. Unhindered. Chains? What are chains? When Paul experiences his second imprisonment. A much more deadly imprisonment. He said these words to second, in Second Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Paul continued to preach the same message. He continued to do the same methods. He was preaching the word. He continued the same ministry, and his mission was continuing as well. Paul's mission was continuing, but Paul's mission wasn't just Paul's mission. It's the church's mission. It's our mission. So we, too, as I mentioned earlier, are to be carrying out verse 31, proclaiming what? The same two things that Paul declared to the Jews, the kingdom of God, and that's more than just heaven or the millennial reign or it's definitely not some geographical area, or even a people group. I wish we had more time to dig into the kingdom of God. We did actually several years ago, a few years ago, not several, a few years ago when we were doing the Beatitudes. Uh, I'll point you to George Eldon Ladd's works on the kingdom of God, the best stuff out there on the kingdom of God. But this kingdom of God essentially means the rule of God. The kingdom is both here now, as God reigns in the hearts of his people and in his church, and it's coming. When every knee shall bow and tongue confess. And that will happen. Every knee, even those rebellious, hard-hearted knees we talked about earlier, will collapse when Jesus returns. You will declare him as Lord one day. I pray that you do it now, on this side of that return. Because on the other side of it, it's too late. It's way too late. He's proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus. Paul was preaching and teaching the good news of the breaking into human history of God's gracious rule through the complete and finished work of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, who died for the sins of his people and has clothed his children in righteousness. And that sacrificial death has been accepted and death has been defeated through the resurrection of Christ and a new kingdom has dawned through Jesus Christ. The rule of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, the sovereignty of God. It's been our whole theme, hasn't it been? The sovereignty of God and the gospel in Acts. We're just wrapping it up the same way we began. The sovereignty of God and the gospel in Acts. We began in Acts chapter 1 with a discussion of Jesus and the kingdom. Jesus talks about the kingdom to his his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And now it ends with a discussion of God's sovereign rule, his kingdom, and the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. The gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. That was Jesus' message, Peter's message, John's message, Stephen's message, Philip's message, James' message, Barnabas' message, Silas' message. 
Priscilla and Aquila's message, Apollos' message, and countless other nameless saints throughout this book. That was their message. It was Paul's message. It is our message. And we continue to take it to the ends of the earth. Repent. Turn from your sin for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We proclaim the rule, the reign, the kingdom of God, and we teach about the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And we do it with with all boldness. And why do we do it with boldness? Or should we do it with boldness? Because it is an unhindered gospel. It is the unhindered gospel. That's what I entitled the message today, the unhindered gospel. Have they named one of the T4G conferences the unhindered gospel? They always have some unsomething gospel. The unhindered gospel. It's the last word, the very last word. Luke is such a detailed writer. He's not, he's paying attention to what words he puts where. And of course the Holy Spirit's paying attention as well. The very last word in the book of Acts is the word unhindered. Unhindered. It's one word in the Greek. Unhindered. And so ends the book of Acts. From a hillside in Judea, in Acts chapter 1, to the imperial palace. From 120 frightened, weak disciples to hundreds of thousands of believers all over the known world in about 30 years. The gospel had come a long way and the story continues. We are Acts 29. The gospel has gone across seas, into dark unknown lands, over the highest mountain ranges, through the thickest jungles, penetrated the most violent people groups of the earth, through the blood of the martyrs, with millions rejecting it, yet millions receiving it. The gospel goes forth un. Hindered. It is unhindered, brothers. And we, therefore, need to be consistent with our ministry and our methods. We need to be constant with the message. And we need to continue the mission. That's our task. That's our task. So the answer to the question, are we there yet? Is no. We are not there yet. We're not there until Jesus Christ returns. We're not there yet. So because we're not there yet, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your unhindered gospel. We are fools and sinners. Even those of us who've professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior still battle sin on a daily basis. And therefore we make mistakes. We make foolish decisions. We get into silly squabbles with our brothers and sisters. We misrepresent you to the world. We are fools. But not even our foolishness can prevent the gospel message from reaching those to whom you intended to reach. And we live in a dangerous world. Persecution on an intellectual level, perhaps, is happening in our country where Christians are called bigots and lame and stupid. But persecution is happening on a physical, bloody level in places like Papua New Guinea, where missionaries, even within the last 20 years, have been killed and eaten. And so the gospel continues to go forth unhindered. No violence of man, no philosophy of men can stop the message of God. We thank you, Father, that that is true. And that should give us boldness. 
That should give us boldness. So if our friend rejects the gospel, we aren't humiliated and go over in a corner and stick our tail between our legs. Father, instead, stir us up to boldness, for you have not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind, of self-control. And so God, stir us up to continue to carry this gospel. Whether it be on the streets, ministering one-on-one with someone, whether it be in our workplace, sharing the gospel for the 15th millionth time with someone, or it's just making sure we're giving the full story, the whole puzzle to our kids. Let us do it continuously, constantly, consistently, because it's an unhindered gospel. And we're just along for the ride. But what joy we get to be part of the means you use to accomplish your sovereign ends. The sovereignty of God and the gospel and acts. Thank you, Father, for this great book. And now stir up our hearts as we get ready for the next, the next great book or the next great series of sermons you want to take us through. Not great because of us, but great because your word is great no matter how bad I preach. Thank you so much for that. And so we pray now, in Jesus' name, his holy, perfect name, the King of kings, whose kingdom is in breaking all the time. And Lord, I pray that it would break into new, fresh hearts even right now this morning. We pray in his name. Amen.